0: Convinced that Saul is completely beside himself with envy and wrath against David, David hides from the wicked king as he waits upon God for deliverance. This is the 42nd sermon in the series, Dynasty Lordship and Authority and Exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 20, the first 23 verses, the first 23 verses Samuel chapter 20 verses 1 through 23. Beloved of the Lord, This is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And David fled from Nahoth in Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father, that he seeketh my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David sware moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, that I should not fail to sit with the king at meat, But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly ask leave of me, that he might run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, It is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, Thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee, notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell thee? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? O what if thy father answer thee roughly? And Jonathan said unto David, Come, and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, The Lord do so much and more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away that thou mayest go in peace and the Lord be with thee as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemy. Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly, and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and shall remain by the stone Ezel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go, find out the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, then come thou. For there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord liveth. But if I say thus unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee, go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away, and is touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of. Behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. Peter, writing in chapter 5, his first epistle, the epistle of St. Peter, to the strangers that are scattered abroad, two verses only, 8 and 9. By the same Spirit, the Apostle says this, as he warns his beloved, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world." As far as the meaning of God's most holy and and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, even in the Old Testament. Now in his pride, arrogancy, and lust for unlimited power, Saul is now entirely out of his mind with power lust having completely lost his senses, at this point we see that he has actually lost his senses. He is now determined to kill God's anointed. And David, by no fault of his own, must now live in the, the bullseye of, of Saul's wrath. And, and this is actually where every child of God lives, especially in the days of tyranny. If they are to call out the darkness of wicked men and their murderous schemes... The Christian lives in the crosshairs of unregenerate, wretched man, the wrath of man. Now during the days of tyrannical intimidation, overreach and mayhem, which is the day in which we live, the faithful will live within the bullseye of wicked man. Now Peter explains the general rule for the Christian, how they are to navigate the world when they are faced with such wickedness. How does the Christian navigate the world when they are faced with such wickedness, mayhem, chaos, tyranny, intimidation? Peter gives us this remedy. He says to us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. But... You resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, consider what he says. What is Peter actually saying? Well, firstly, he is saying, be well aware of the intentions of the wicked. As a roaring lion, they walk about and they actively seek those whom he may devour. His desire is for devouring. Attached to the goal of the wicked is to devour the righteous, to devour the just. And it is because of that desire of devouring, they roar. Notice, as a roaring lion. In other words, they telegraph their intention to devour God's people. And that's the initial response. The initial response of the righteous is that when they hear the roaring of the wicked, they, if they lack faith, are very easily intimidated. Just think about it. Just naturally, we're we hear the roaring, we, we, hear, we hear the things on the news about how the wicked are going to do this or they're going to do that. And immediately, we're, we're initially at least intimidated. That's the initial response. Because wicked men, their psychological methodology is to destroy the morale of God's people by intimidation. Wicked men seek to intimidate in the hope that that's all they'll need to do. That they don't have to act upon their threats. And through intimidation, they hope that they they will strike fear into the hearts of the people, and that fear will lead the people into compliance. So by identifying the wicked's intention, Peter is impressing upon the hearer the gravity of the situation which God's people face. Note also that the wicked are not notice he's not saying they are lions. He doesn't say they're lions. He says that they are as lions which means that they act as lions. They're not necessarily lions. In fact, and the simple fact is this, that while they may act as lions, they are actually serpents and scorpions. And they have their abode in the dust of the earth, slithering and scheming for the destruction of God's people. Peter also identifies one of the strategies of subversion and destruction by calling them devils. Notice, your adversary as a roaring lion, the devil. But the Greek word for devil here, diablos, is actually a literal word which means a slanderer. By means of psychological warfare, the wicked begin their assault upon the righteous through slander in order to put them on the defensive. And the reason why the wicked want to keep the saint on the defensive is because they know that if the saint goes on the offensive, if the saint goes on the offensive, then They're doomed. All will be lost. So, wicked man, as the cowards that they are, are terrified of the possibility of the people of God unifying and going on the offensive. Because it is through that offensive maneuver of God's people that the wicked will be destroyed. Remember, when David slew the giant, everyone unified behind him. And that's when the Philistines were destroyed. And so in order to keep the people of God on the defensive, they either silence the church or take over the church or administer false gospels of hope which blinds the eye of the people from really what's going on and what is required to stop it. The second thing that Peter teaches is this. Sobriety is the key. Spiritual sobriety is the key. Panic is dangerous. When we listen to the wicked of the world, the roaring of the lions, of the serpents and the scorpions, and we begin to panic, that's a problem. So Peter says, don't panic. Be spiritually sober. The way we deal with the wicked is through spiritual sobriety, which is the opposite of being in a drunken stupor. Drunkenness, spiritual drunkenness, hijacks clear and precise thinking. When one is drunk, all natural inhibitions, when one is physically drunk, that is, all natural inhibitions are suspended, leaving the drunkard open for compromise and subversion. Christians must be resolute and calm in the face of threatenings and slander. So they have to be spiritually sober, sober sober-minded, well-balanced. Peter then says this, that the Christian is to be vigilant. Literally, that means watchful. The saint is to be watchful. In other words, wake up and be watchful to what's going on around you, understanding the orchestration of God in his providential dealings and understand how you are to respond to that providential orchestration of all things. So the saint is to be watchful. He is to be awake to the situation as at hand. Adam Clark in his commentaries explains that the wicked are, are always awake. They're always awake. They're always looking around. It's the Christian that seems to be sleeping. And therefore, if the wicked are awake, we must be awake. Christ warns what happens when the righteous leave off watchfulness. Christ warns that when the righteous leave off watchfulness, trouble begins. Notice Matthew 13, 24 and 25. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. While men slept, while the church slept, While the Christian slept, while the saint is to be watchful with the affairs of what is going on around him, he moreover is to be watchful and awake to what God is teaching him as it applies to the situation. We can never be asleep. We always must be vigilant. Too often we focus on what is going on in the world around us without recognizing what God is teaching us by what's going on in the world. So if something is going on in the world, we just don't say, well, what's going on in the world? This is a terrible thing, or this is a great thing, or whatever. No, we ask the question, what is God saying by what He's orchestrating? Vigilance of study and the application of the Word of God is essential in order to successfully navigate the situations that God presents us with. If you find yourself panicked, if you find yourself fearful, if you find yourself sleepless, at night because you've just watched Fox News, you've watched MSLSD or CNN. It is because you are not reading the Word of God. You are not vigilant in your study and you don't know how to apply the Word of God because that is essential to the navigation of the situation which God is presenting us with. Then Peter adds this. And here's the remedy. Resist steadfast in the faith. Faith is the key. Believing is the key. Trusting in God is the key. Trusting in God to care and protect His church. Trusting in the promises of our, of our security. Trusting in God for our prosperity. That's the key. But there is verbiage attached to this faithful resistance. And that's what it is. We are to resist in faith. But notice, notice what he says. Steadfast. In other words, resist steadfast. He doesn't just say resist in the faith. That would have been good. But he adds this word, steadfast, unmovable, tenacious, bold. Then Peter adds, that the Christian is not alone in his struggles against the darkness of this present world. Knowing that, he says, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in our brethren that are in the world. Now that's very odd, an odd wording. What does Peter mean? So what Peter means is that, that you are not alone in the struggle. The same afflictions that are accomplished in the brethren. Now why is it important to know this? Because what he's saying is that not only that we are not alone in, in our fight and in our struggle, we are not alone in our kingdom quest. Because what we are to be doing is building the kingdom with our children, teaching them what is the kingdom. The kingdom is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. What do we want for our nation? Righteousness, joy and peace. Freedom of conscience where the Lord is the Lord of conscience. That's the kingdom. That's the the components of the kingdom. So what he is saying, so what he is saying is that we are not alone in our fight, nor are we alone in our kingdom quest. We share with all Christians in every place in this struggle, and therefore, as we share in the afflictions and the trials, we will share also in the victory. Adam Clark explains further. He says, It is the lot of all the disciples of Christ. And I know you're not going to like this. I don't know who likes this, but this is the key. It is the lot of all disciples of Christ to suffer persecution. That's why the true church is so much of a remnant. He continues. The brotherhood of the Christian Church, everywhere, is exposed to the assaults of men and devils. You are persecuted by the heathen among whom ye live, and from among whom ye are gathered into the fold of Christ. And the reason why we are persecuted and tried and tested is so that we might look to Christ, not to our own strength. Peter confirms Clark's interpretation in verses 10 and 11. Notice, he says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, He will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it is necessary, for us to go through trials, whether it's individual trials or, or health issues or national issues or whatever, it's necessary for our maturation. The Reverend Scott adds this very important observation. Notice what he says The apostle did not pray that his brethren might be exempted from salutary and honorable trials, but he besought the God of all grace, being plenteous in mercy and the inexhaustible and only source of every kind and measure of grace, who, by His Word and Spirit, had called them to the hope and sure earnests of eternal and most glorious felicity through Jesus Christ, so that, after they had suffered a while for the trial and increase of their faith, notice the sufferings was for their trial and increase of faith, he would make them mature and complete in every Christian grace, establish them in the peace and in the hope of the gospel, strengthen them to resist all kinds of temptation, to endure all kinds of sufferings, and to perform all kinds of duties by invigorating their holy affections. And that he would settle them firm and immovable, as a compact building on a good foundation, so that no storms, no assaults or stratagems of the enemy might overthrow them. And this would redound to his praise as the work of his power and sovereign authority, to whom all glory and dominion ought, universally and eternally, to be ascribed End quote. That's why we need the trials to become mature. So it is now David's time of trial, as he is now being, by God, matured for that office of sovereign kingship. So now it's time for David to be tried, as he is forced into the crosshairs of Saul's wrath and God's testing ground. Knowing that Saul's murderous intentions could not be turned, David removes himself from danger. We see this in verse 1. And David fled from Nahoth to Ramah. This teaches us that there is a time to fight, a time to run, and a time to hide. It's incumbent upon us to figure out what to do when. For David, it was a time here to run. He chooses to remove himself from danger, In order to seek a reason, he's trying to figure out why does Saul want me dead? He's trying to figure out a reason for Saul's wrath from his trusted friend Jonathan. And so David travels to Samuel's abode in Ramah and asks for an explanation for Saul's hatred. And David fled from Nahoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? He wants to know the why. He knows the what, but why? I think this is a human thing. We want to know why. Why why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why is Saul hating me? Why is God destroying America? Why do we have this president? Why do we have that Congress and this judiciary? Why is it such a mess? We want to know why. So David asks why. What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father that he seeks after my life? David wants to know why. And it's easy here to understand the human element in David's concern. As it is recorded in the history of Israel, here we have an historical record of what a tyrant will do when the people of God threaten his power and position. And that's what David was doing. He didn't mean to do that. It wasn't up to him. It was Samuel that ordained him. It was God that called Samuel to ordain him. And he was now going to be the future king. And that in itself, not because David wanted to threaten the power position of Saul, but he was a threat to Saul's power and position just because of who he was. The church is a threat to the powers that be just because of what they stand for. David wanted to make sense of everything that was happening simply because what was happening made no sense. You think about this. The church is the foundation of all righteousness, all ethics, all good. Why would the wicked want to destroy the church? The church is the, the foundation of culture. It's the foundation of society. It's the foundation of a family. It encourages the family. It encourages children. It encourages the raising of children. It encourages community and unity. Why would the wicked want it destroyed? That's what David was asking. The actions of a tyrant. In David's mind and in our mind, it makes no logical sense, other than a quest to satisfy a single man's lust for control over others. David knew what was happening. He knew very well what was happening. Probably better than Jonathan. He just wanted to know why. And it is the why that he couldn't understand. And he was unable to understand the why because he was trying to understand it logically. And the only way we can understand what is happening is by not trying to understand it logically because logically it makes no sense. In fact, when you could put a man for a woman and a woman from a man and do all of this crazy stuff logic goes out the window. So to try to make sense of anything that's going on in the United States and in the world, logically, makes no sense. The only way you can understand the why is because men are evil and God is judging the nation because the church has been so silent. The answer to the question of why, why do the wicked persecute the just, is painfully clear. So let's... Answer that question in several particulars. Why do the wicked persecute the just? First, the wicked persecute the just because they love darkness and hate the light. Knowing that they're, and this is important, they know their deeds are evil. In their conscience, they know that their deeds are evil. And knowing that their deeds are evil, they hide in the darkness so as not to be exposed. Secondly, The wicked persecute the just as a result of their hatred of anything that is good and godly. And the people of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, that ordained, holy, sanctified institution, represents God and all that is good and godly. Thirdly, the wicked also persecute the just as a result of their hatred against God himself, because they want to be God. And since they can't be God They try to kill God, but they can't kill God, so they kill the witness of God, the church, so they could claim to be God himself. But the state is not God. Number four, connected to the idea of the wicked's hatred toward God, they want to be as God, defining for themselves what is good and what is evil. This is good, this is evil. It makes no sense of what they're saying, because they're putting good for evil and evil for good, but they want to redefine things. When God put Adam in the garden, he was told to define the animals and he could define them properly because he was without sin at that point. But once he fell, his definition of good and evil was perverted. So sinful man wants to be as God and define for themselves what is good and what is evil according to their own perverted, sinful and fallen, depraved nature. And in order to be God, defining reality, notice, Today, wicked men are defining reality according to their own depraved mind. This biological XY chromosome is really an XX chromosome. Doesn't make sense. This conception in this woman is not a real person. Doesn't make sense. They're defining things according to their own lust, their own depraved mind. And... By redefining the world in their image, they're seeking to dominate the entire civilized world, brainwashing the entire civilized world, trying to eliminate God, or at least the witness of God, so that they could be God. And this is what is happening all around us, simply because we have been silent. Number five, the mind of wicked man is in utter ruin and chaos. If you don't think we live in a world of chaos right now, then you haven't been observant. You've been sleeping. Therefore, the world in which man desires to create is according to his likeness and his image, which is ruined and chaotic. Now, rather than creating a utopia because of his perversion... Because he is chaotic and in ruin, he invariably creates a dystopia of misery and chaos. And the problem for unregenerate man is that God and his church stands in the way. And the only way to reconstruct the world according to the mind of sinful man is when the church is either compromised, silenced, or eliminated. And that's why we cannot be silent. Let the apostate church remain silent and compromised by worldly lusts, but never let us be compromised. And so, naturally, David asks... What have I done? What is mine iniquity, and what is my sin before my Father, Thy Father, that He seeketh my life? Now these are rhetorical questions, since David knows that he has done nothing to warrant death, but he's asking for a judgment. He's asking, why does Saul seek? Is there justification for this? Is there a judicial inquiry that we can have come together to determine what my sin has been, if any? So David is actually calling on God at this point to judge between Saul and David and he is appealing to Jonathan as a mediator. And so David appeals to Jonathan in this way to confirm that Saul has no justification to kill David. But the real confusing issue is this: why is David so panicked? I mean you think about David, and I, I look at David and here's this young shepherd boy, now maturing, ran alone single-handedly kills the champion of the Philistines, but at this point, he's panicked. So why is he so panicked that Saul wants to kill him when not long ago, fearlessly, he faced the menacing giant of Gath? Why so much? A second thought, oh, this is no giant, this is, this is Saul. Well, I think it was not so much the threat of death, but he was so upset because of who the threat came from. This is a man, Saul, who was called of God. He was ordained of God. He was placed in kingship authority over all of Israel. And this was not just some uncircumcised Philistine This pagan who David could just face off with and easily kill, as he had done so many times. This was God's anointed. This was the king of Israel. This was David's king. This was David's father in law, who had just until recently had loved David. So he's questioning what changed? Why the betrayal? And this is the cause for David's concern. He could not just stand and face off against the king to defend himself, he had to run, he had to remove himself. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. So, thinking that Saul would continue to confide in his son, Jonathan responds, and he said unto him, God forbid that thou shouldst die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? And he said, it's not so. My father is going to tell me everything that... Now, this was certainly not the case, and David knew it. Jonathan was about to be shut out of all Saul's secret dealings concerning the assassination of David. And David explains... And David sware moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved, but truly as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. In other words, he's not going to tell you what he really thinks. And hearing this, Jonathan pledges his allegiance. And then he contrives with David a plan. And David gives him an idea. Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. If thy father miss me, then say David earnestly asked to leave and go to Bethlehem, his city, for the sacrifice with his family. Now if you remember, Saul said, you're not to leave the royal house. You're to be with me. You can't go back to your family. You are mine. I own you now. So to go back to the family, if Saul was angry... Jonathan would know that Saul still wanted to kill David. If Saul said, okay, that's fine, everything is fine, let him go be with his family, then things would be well. And that's basically what they are contriving here together. If he says it is well, thy servant shall have peace, but if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. So David then reminds Jonathan of the covenant that they made together and asks uh Jonathan to deal mercifully with him, but if Jonathan can find any cause for David's death, notice what David is saying. He said, if you can actually find cause for my death, you kill me. If there be any iniquity in me, you slay me yourself. Why should thou bring me to thy father? Why should you bring me to Saul? Kill me yourself. So knowing, and, and David knows, he has not committed anything worthy of death. David takes safety in his covenant with Jonathan. Now, we must now go beyond the historical realities and the practical lessons to understand the spiritual truths of the gospel in this narrative. As we have already pointed out, Saul is portrayed as a type of Adam and all of Adam's race that seeks to kill God's anointed, beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Adam was, Saul is... Adam was the first king within the Garden of Eden and the anointed of God in the same way that Saul was the first king over God's garden heritage, Israel, and the anointed of God. But once Adam sinned, he became the enemy of God. He became the enemy of Christ and his church in the same way at this point as Saul now has become the enemy of David who represents Christ because the wicked of the world will always seek the death of God's anointed. So once again, we have a strong correlation in Adam and Saul and Christ and David. Adam is finally defrocked for his pride, his arrogance and his disobedience as was Saul for his pride, arrogance and disobedience. Once Adam is defrocked, the promise of the Christ is given in Genesis 3 in the same way as when Saul was defrocked, David is then anointed by Samuel and the promise of the future king is given through David. Christ is the true king as David is the true king. And in the same way that those of Adam's race seek the death of Christ and his priestly heritage, so too did Saul seek the death of David and his priestly heritage. This correlation, this correlation is also factored into the reason why David refuses to lift his hand to kill Saul later on, because he waits on God to deal with the tyrant. Okay, so now the plan is set. The plan is set, Jonathan and David lay out their particulars. Jonathan says. Far be it from me, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, I would tell you. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? Or what if thy father answer thee roughly? How are we going to communicate? Jonathan said unto David, Come and let us go out into the field. And they went, both of them, into the field, and they strike a plan. Jonathan says to David, when I have sounded or when I have figured out what the intention of Saul is, when I've searched out my father's intention about tomorrow, any time or the third day, and behold, if my father seeks good toward you, then I will show it to you. But if it please my father to do evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away so that thou might go in peace and the Lord be with thee. Jonathan adds something else very interesting. Knowing David will be finally coronated as king. Now, he knows this. Remember, he knows this. He pleads for David to show kindness to him and his posterity. Think about how important posterity is. Think about how important your children are, your grandchildren. Think about how important it is to raise a godly heritage. Jonathan knew that if things went sideways and he somehow is taken up and killed, that David would not forget his children. This was the thing Jonathan lived for, to see his children prosper in righteousness. That is what every parent should want, every Christian parent should want. So, he says, When you are finally coronated as king, please show kindness to me through my posterity. Notice what he says. And thou shalt not only while I yet live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from off the face of the earth. Just remember a remnant. Just remember my children And even after he says all of the enemies of God are destroyed by the hand of David, remember my children. Now once these particulars are set forth, Jonathan seals this agreement by covenant with David for himself and his entire lineage in verse 16 and 17. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as his own soul. So this covenant obligation was a legally binding oath. It was bound in the sight of God between David and Jonathan, which made David and Jonathan in the sight of God part of the covenant. And when David agreed to this, it was to agree that no matter what the situation or circumstance, the agreement would have to be kept. Nothing could go back. And David is an honorable man. He is going to have to keep that. He would then show kindness to Jonathan's posterity. If there was any violation of the oath there would then necessarily be dire consequences, and David understood that as well. Jonathan then introduces David to the sign in which he will give him depending on what Saul's intention is. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was at hand and shalt remain by the stone Izel." And I will shoot thee three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a young man, a lad, saying, Go and find out the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, then you can come out. For there is peace to be for you, and no hurt, and I swear, as the Lord liveth. But, If I say this to the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee. Don't get them. Go thy way. For the Lord hath sent thee away, and Saul is desiring to kill you. Now consider the tactics of these covenanters. This is a secret code. And during the days of tyranny, secret codes are necessary. So Jonathan proposes a secret code, and this was a secret covert operation contrived for the safety of the righteous future king. It was a deceptive plan in order to preserve life. Deception in the face of tyranny is biblically sanctioned. Furthermore, this was that deceptive tactic against the tyrant and the tyranny of Saul, because deceiving of the enemy is not only permissible, but it's commanded when the saints are in danger from the wicked. And then finally, even though Saul was Jonathan's father, he had violated God's law and had become a murderous lying tyrant, all of which freed Jonathan from any allegiance to him. He was no longer bound to be faithful to his father, the king, because his father had neglected his duty. Saul had put himself in the position of being deceived. He had put himself in the position of being an illegitimate lawgiver and king. And once Jonathan's actions showed him a most judicious and righteous man who knew very clearly the difference between good and evil, even when it concerned his own father, he would then flock to David and leave off his father. Jonathan wanted a man who knew the difference between right and wrong, and that was not his father. Now consider again, why did Jonathan love David the way he did? Why did he love them? Why did he trust him? To the extent of making a second covenant with him? Well, we're given a hint from chapter 18, when Jonathan is first introduced to David's heart. And it came to pass, when he, David, made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You see, David's actions, David's words revealed his heart. His was a heart for God, a heart for God's glory, his honor and praise. Furthermore, David's words showed that he was sincere in his love for God's people and as a trained and faithful shepherd, he would never leave them or forsake them. His words and his actions worked together. He was not just a professor of religion where he would say one thing and do another. He was not a hypocrite. And this is what thrilled Jonathan, because these were the very same sentiments of Jonathan's own heart. David was not only justified by his words, he was justified by his actions, and he was able to draw others of like-mindedness by his words as well. And here's the lesson. By the language that we speak, we show what is in our heart. And those words are confirmed... Not by what we say, but what we do. Words and actions must work together. Notice what Jesus says A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The Reverend William J. adds this, he says, The scripture teaches that God's people will not speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. A part is put for the whole, and the quality of their speech is designed to express the inward temper of their minds. They shall be Israelites indeed, in whom there is no guile. Everything are lies with God that do not accord with the state of the heart, and only an upright spirit can maintain a deceitless tongue. The fruit partakes of the nature of the tree. What is in the well will be in the bucket. What is in the warehouse will be in the shop. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." Quote. So if our language reflects more about the things of the world without a reflection upon the sovereign king of the universe then our words will condemn us. If we are empty religionists, our words will condemn us. Our words should always be uttered with the intent of communicating biblical truths, either in thanksgiving, encouragement, counsel, rebuke, correction, challenges, coupled with a providential analysis of the world around us and those situations that affect us. We need to be biblical speakers and biblical actors. We need to act biblically and speak biblically. The ultimate motivational goal of the Christian should always be for God's honor and the establishment of His crown rights our witness must also include a testimony of His mercy as well as His wrath and judgment upon the wicked, His forgiving spirit and His power that worketh effectually in His saints to mortify sin. These are the words that must come from our lips. These are the words that we teach our children. These are the words that distinguish us from the wicked of the world. The psalmist gives these examples. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the number thereof. These are the words of the shepherd King David in Psalm 19, 34, 40, 49, 63, and 71. For he knew, God knew, that David was a man after his own heart and David knew himself to be a man of integrity. Now before Jonathan departs to execute his plan, he tells David this, And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, The Lord be between thee and me forever. So in essence, he's telling David that the covenant agreement they made is a generational promise that has been witnessed by God himself. Very serious. It was a blood oath of two men who had been yoked as Christian brothers by God's Spirit and by God's anointing and atoning sacrifice. And it was a bond that could never be broken, not even in death, In fact, it was a bond which would continue throughout many generations. We will continue next time as Jonathan searches Saul for his intentions against David and is very disappointed. This we shall do next time as we continue in our exposition of 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.